Thank you, Mary. If you have your Bibles, turn, please, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 59. Isaiah, chapter 59. Now, let me begin, first of all, by thanking the pastor for giving me the privilege of being able to preach today. I always consider it an honor when a pastor uh, allows me to stand in his pulpit. Let me also take a moment to welcome those that are watching online and those that are watching over in, uh, in the gym in the modern service. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, we're introduced to the sons of Issachar. Now, they're described as men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Now, we'll share with you that that's the purpose of the sermon today. I want to help you understand the times in which we live, why what is happening is happening, and then also I want to help you to understand what I think we can do as God's people to be able to stem that tide and at least defend ourselves. The text again is, first is uh, Isaiah chapter 59, beginning at verse 1 and going down through verse 14. Isaiah 59 1 through 14. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that he cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have been a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood, your tongues mutter wickedness. No one sues righteousness, no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies and conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are the works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are the thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace, and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked, and whoever treads on them does not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness, for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we're like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities." transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from the Lord, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. The title of the sermon today is Snake Eggs, Spider Webs, and a Lost Sword. Let's pray together. And this is your time to pray. God has something He wants to say to you. I recognize there's not a single thing that I have worth listening to. It is only as God takes His Word and applies it to your heart. So I want you to pray a very simple prayer, four words, Lord, speak to me. Now, if you don't want to use those words, you can use whatever you want, but right now, won't you pray that God would speak to you in these next few moments?
Father, you hear our prayers as always. It's our desire to hear your voice. We ask that your Holy Spirit would do what you've told us that he would be sent to do to guide us in the truth. Father, that you would answer the prayers that we each one individually have prayed, that we would hear your voice today. Let it drown out anything that would beckon for our attention. Let it sink deep into our hearts and minds. For we make all of these prayers in the very strong and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as our scene opens, we find our hero wandering in an ever-darkening forest. As he make his, makes his way, he begins to look down at the path, and he notices that there are eggs all along the sides of the path, and they're beginning to hatch. In the dimness of the light, he looks down, and he begins to realize that those eggs are snake eggs, and out of them is coming a deadly viper. Soon he will be surrounded by, by a hissing horde of instant death. He quickly turns and looks for the only opening that he can and begins to run in that direction, only to run right into a huge, sticky spider web. The more he be, struggles to get free, the more he becomes entangled. Then he thinks to himself, my sword! Struggling, he manages to free one hand and he reaches down only to discover that the sword is gone dropped along the way. That's the scene that's painted by our text. I do not believe that it's unreasonable to suggest that this passage paints a pretty good picture of where we are as a nation. It does not take a great deal of wisdom to discern that America is in serious trouble. There are many of God's ministers who are predicting that our days are numbered unless God intervenes. There are many who are crying, oh, Lord, do something. Well, I would remind you what Isaiah says in our text. God's hands are not so short that he cannot save us. Neither is his ear so dull that he cannot hear us. So what's the problem? Well, Isaiah states it very clearly. He said, our sins have made a separation between us and our God. Our sins have hidden his face from us, so he does not hear. And then Isaiah in our text begins to recount some of those sins. He says, our hands are bloodied. He says, our fingers are defiled with iniquity. He says, our lips speak only lies and wickedness. He says, no one sues righteously. No one pleads in truth. We spend all our time conceiving and achieving all kinds of evil. He says, our works are, are always full of sin. Our hands are full of violent acts. We run toward evil. We shed innocent blood. Devastation and destruction, he says, are in our highways. He says, we do not know the way of peace, and justice is gone. The road that we travel is a crooked path, Isaiah says. That will not bring us to peace. We hope for light, but we only get darkness. We cannot find our way, Isaiah says. We're like blind men stumbling in the light. Any hope of salvation is far from us. We're multiplied sinners. We're doubters and deniers of the Lord. Why is that happening? Well, Isaiah gives us the answer in verse 5 and verse 14. He says, we've hatched the adder's eggs, we've woven the spider's web, and truth has fallen by the wayside. Consider first that snake eggs have been spawned. Now, metaphorically in Scripture, Satan is presented as the old serpent. 
And since the Garden of Eden, that old serpent has continually been able to lay eggs that are nurtured and hatched in the incubators of our hearts. And I believe that these snake eggs are Satan's poisonous philosophies. We find them in science. We find them in society. We find them in our spirituality. Now, while it would be impossible for us to look at all of these philosophies, I want to take a few moments to look at some of the ones that I think are impacting us most today. First of all, look at Satan's scientific eggs. Now, I want to give you a caveat. Any scientific theory that is in conflict with or directly contradicts the truth of God's Word should never be accepted as a scientific fact, but rather as scientific fiction or even worse, scientific fraud. Secondly, as God's people, we should never interpret God's Word by using science. We should always interpret science through the lens of God's Word. Now, one of Satan's most destructive scientific eggs was in the heart of Charles Darwin, and it hatched in 1859 when he wrote The Descent of Man. Now, in that, he presented the idea that the primordial ooze brought forth life, and over millions of years, we evolved. You might remember Grimm's fairy tale, The Frog Prince. It's the story of a princess who was wandering through a forest, and she hears this frog croaking in the distance, and she goes over, and the frog looks at her and says, if you kiss me, I'll become a prince. Well, reluctantly, she reaches down and picks the frog up and plants a big old kiss on it, and instantly he becomes the prince. Now, if you think a frog can become a prince with a kiss of a princess, that's a fairy tale. If you think that frog can become a prince over millions of years, that's evolution. I like the way Frank Peretti put it. He says, it basically is from the goo to you by way of the zoo. <laughs> that man is not a creation of God. We're not created in God's image, but rather we're a spontaneously generated, slowly evolving animal. I've had people ask me over the years, well, why is that important? What would you believe about creation? Well, Jesus said it's very important when he was talking to Nicodemus. Now, we all memorized John 3.16 when we were kids. But in that discussion with Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, verse 12, Jesus makes an interesting statement to Nicodemus. He says, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe heavenly things? We wonder why it's being more difficult to share Christ and why so many people just turn their back well, we've convinced them over the years that God's Word is a lie. They're no longer believing earthly things from God's Word, so why should they ever believe spiritual things? Well, what about theistic evolution? God used evolution. There's a problem with that. You see, the driving force of evolution is death. And there are people who say, well, between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, that's where there's millions of years and things living and dying. There's only one problem with that. Again, you have death present in creation before Adam and Eve sinned. And if death was present before Adam and Eve sinned, then death cannot be the punishment for sin. Then why did Jesus have to come and why did he have to die? You see, the reality is, 
is what God teaches in His Word, beginning in Genesis 1-1, is the foundation upon which all the rest of Scripture rests. Genesis 1-11, through you eliminate those, you've eliminated Scripture. There's no need for the rest of it if you eliminate those, if you make those all fiction. Let me give you some other ideas of biblical truth versus scientific theories. Well, millions of years. That's not what Genesis says. It says that God created the world in six days. Well, how do you know those were literal days? Well, morning and evening, that's pretty clear. And if you look at what God said to Moses when he was giving the Ten Commandments, he said, six days shall you work for in six days God created the heavens and the earth. I pastored a church right across the street from Johnson Space Center, a church full of high intellect individuals. I would many times interact with folks over at the Johnson Space Center. And one, one gentleman asked me one time, he said, do you believe that God created the earth in six days? I said, well, actually, I believe in a God who could have done it in an instant. There's a reason why he did it in six days. And I said, that's because he wants us to work six days. Share something else with you. It is impossible to get accurate data from a corrupt sample. If you were a scientist working in a laboratory and you had a sample and it became corrupt, you can't get accurate data from that. Well, I would submit to you that if you want to get accurate age of the world, you would have to judge it before it fell. Because the Bible says that when Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the world. Now, in Mark 11, Jesus cursed the fig tree. What happened to it? The Greek indicates that it got old and died in one day. When God cursed the world as a result of Adam and Eve sinned, death and age entered quickly into the universe. Well, don't you believe in multiple genders? Nope. Adam and Eve, God created male and female, Genesis 5-2. How about different races? Bible never mentions race, except the human race. It talks about tongues and tribes and nations, but it doesn't talk about multiple races. You see, we are all the same race. We're all the same blood because we all have the same creator. The last two censuses, you know, the census taken every 10 years, when they ask your race, I put down human. <laughs> what about climate change? I'm going to give you a biblical answer for climate change. These people who have been predicting the world's going to just basically dissolve in 12 years. Well, they've been saying that for 40 years, by the way. Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. That's a promise God made to Noah. So God basically tells us, Climate change is not going to change the world. It's going to continue until God said that's enough. So let me switch over now to Satan's societal eggs. And again, there are multiple. But I want to share with you some of the ones that I think are impacting our culture right now. In 1820, George Frederick Hegel presented a philosophy of history that he called a dialectic. Now let me tell you what he, what he did. He said, you have a truth, a thesis and that truth is attacked by an anti-truth, an antithesis, an antithesis. And out of that collision comes a synthesis, a new truth. What was he saying? 
He was saying there's no absolute truth. That truth is always evolving. He went on, by the way, to say that the state should be supreme and that progress demands conflict. In my interaction over the years with college students, high school students, when they say to me, well, there's no absolute truth, I like to say, well, are you absolutely sure? (laughs) Karl Marx in 1848 took Hegel's truth, or lie, wrote his Communist Manifesto and built it all on Hegel's idea. He called his dialectic materialism. He believed the state should become the ultimate authority on what truth is, that God is a creation of man and that religion is basically opiate of people. That's the philosophy of socialism and communism which is impacting our society today. In 1856 through 1939, a gentleman lived by the name of Sigmund Freud. His basic principle of life was that man's primary motivation is to fulfill his sensual desires. And if you don't do that, you'll end up with a neuroses. You say, okay, that's great. Hegel, Marx, Freud, big deal. No, it's not a big deal. Because John Dewey in the first half of the 20th century used these ideas as the foundation for progressive education. He was the the father of progressive education. He was a signer of the Humanist Manifesto. He was a founder of the ACLU. He established a humanistic, anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-Bible approach to education and teaching. That's impacting our school systems even now. While I love and appreciate the Christian teachers, I have a daughter who's a t- I have two daughters who work in education. Many times those Christian teachers' hands are tied. And what's being presented and put forth are all these ideas based on these snake eggs that have hatched and brought forth a deadly offspring. It's the reason why atheism and socialism is so prevalent in our school systems. Thomas Oden wrote a book recently called Modernity, and in that book, he said that we've raised a generation that believes four fundamental values. Number one, moral relativism, that right and wrong are dictated by the culture, social location, and situation. Well, you know what that's called? That's situational ethics. That means that where you live, where, where, what your situation is, might mean that what you're doing is okay, even though it might be wrong for me, it's okay for you. What might be wrong for you is okay for me. That there's no, again, foundation for what is right and what is wrong. He said that we, this generation believes in a narcissistic hedonism, which basically is the idea that the focus of every person ought to be achieving their own personal pleasure first before anything else. He said that they believe in an autonomous individualism, that moral authority comes from within the person and nowhere else. And lastly, they believe in a reductive nationalism that the only reliable knowledge is found in what you can see and hear and investigate empirically, uh, investigate empirically basically undermining faith. So these societal eggs are hatching, and again, they've brought forth a deadly offspring.
that's impacting our society, our country, and the world. What about Satan's spiritual eggs? Well, these philosophical eggs have impacted man's religion. This is false religions. The egg that was planted in the Garden of Eden in the heart of Adam and Eve was basically that you can become your own God through your own effort. And that lie is the foundation for every false religion. I don't care what it is. It's all that through your own effort, following the principles of your religion, doing what they tell you to do, you can earn a right relationship and maybe even become God. The lie of the Garden of Eden permeates false religions. And since, by the way, there's no absolute truth, these false religions must be accepted as equally true. That's universalism. I remember growing up, we were taught that we needed to be tolerant. Well, back then, tolerant meant that you could be tolerant the fact that somebody else had a view, but you didn't have to accept the fact that that view was equal with yours. Now, if you do not accept the fact that their view, their religion is equal with yours, you're intolerant. To not accept them as such means that you're a bigot and you're intolerant. And by the way, since all religions are the same, I have no right to debate, dispute, or deny another person's religion, and I have no right to try to convert them. Now, how do these philosophies, how have they permeated our culture? I think in three ways. Number one, through teaching, from preschool through postgraduate work. I remember being taught, I'll be 76 in August, I remember being taught some of these things when I was a little boy. Secondly, through the theater, through arts and media and entertainment. You used to go to the movies to be entertained, now you go to be indoctrinated. I mean, even Walt Disney now has transsexual cartoon characters. And the last way is table talk. This is where a bunch of people are sitting around a table and somebody will espouse one of these truths. Nobody there confronts them, and so everybody else just kind of nods their head and it becomes accepted. So what hatched? Well, let me give you some historical events. In 1924, Hitler wrote Mein Kampf. He took Hegel's idea and used it to build the Nazi regime and justify his invasion of Europe. Hitler was also a social Darwinist who believed that the Aryan race had evolved to a higher level than all the other races and needed to maintain their superiority and they needed to eliminate all the inferior races. As a result, an estimated 70 to 85 million people died, including military and civilian casualties as well as war-related disease and famine deaths. Victor Frankl, Victor Frankl who was a Holocaust survivor, Here's what he wrote. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but the product of heredity and environment. I'm absolutely convinced that the gas chambers were ultimately prepared, not in some ministry in Berlin, but rather at the desk and in lecture halls of the nihilistic scientists and philosophers in Germany. In 2015, Vivian and I had an opportunity to take a tour of Auschwitz. It's an eye-opening experience. But I came across a quote that I had to write down, a quote from Adolf Hitler. 
I freed Germany from the stupid and degrading fallacies of conscience and morality. We will train young people before whom the world will tremble. I want young people capable of violence, impervious, relentless, and cruel. I submit to you we see that in the streets of America right now. How about Stalin? He acted on Karl Marx's ideas. We don't know how many people he killed. It's at least 30. Some people estimated 60 million or plus. Mao Tse-Sung, China, 30 million at least. Again, we don't know how many. You say, well, thank goodness that doesn't happen in America. I would submit to you we've killed 63 million of our own citizens through abortion. That is almost 20 complete states wiped out. You say, well, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah, you still have to worry because the fight's not over. How about some current events? The acceptance that anything goes. Animal rights over human rights. You see those commercials, the little puppy dog trembling. Please give help. You ever seen a commercial like that for a preborn baby? Anarchy. They're acting like animals. Well, that's what we've told them they are their whole lives. What well, should we expect anything different? Authority is scoffed at and scorned. You know, in the 60s, people rebelled against authority. Now there's rebellion because there is no authority. Accountability, not my fault. Nobody's willing to accept accountability for anything. It's always somebody else's fault. How about the abolition of religious freedom? 1962, prayer was removed from school. 1963, the Bible was removed. 1980, the Ten Commandments removed. 1982, creation was totally disallowed. Snake eggs have been spawned, and they have hatched a deadly offspring that's poisoning the hearts and minds of people across our nation and around the world. Secondly, spider webs have been spun. Now, it's interesting that the way that it's worded, Isaiah says that we hatched the adder's egg. We didn't spawn them. Satan spawned them. We just allowed them to be hatched. But when he talks about the spider's webs, he said, you have spun the spider webs. This is something that we have done. And I think the spider webs are the selfish entanglements in which we have allowed ourselves to become ensnared. Self-serving attitudes, an egocentrism that basically says it's me first and everybody else, who cares? What I do is not wrong as long as it suits me and it doesn't hurt anybody else. How it affects me determines everything. Secondly, sensual appetites. We are an amoral amoral society. There are no restraints anymore. You know, I've lived long enough to, you know, over my life, I, I don't know how many times I've said, well, I guess I've seen it all now. Only to guess I've seen it all now. Only to guess I've seen it all now. The experimentation, if it feels good, do it. Promiscuity, everything is equally moral. There's nothing amoral as long as there's consent. And how about sinful addictions that hold us in a tangled web and all the time we think we're free? What are these webs? Well, materialism, pornography, drugs and alcohol, leisure and entertainment, 
gambling. Let me share an axiom with you. If you sow an attitude, you will reap an act. If you sow an act, you will reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you will reap a character. We become entangled of spider webs of our own making. Lastly, consider that the sword has slipped away. We're engulfed in hatching snake eggs. We're entangled in spider webs. But I want to share with you that the greatest problem is that we've allowed the sword of truth to slip away. Now, what happens when truth is lost? Well, first of all, standards are lost. There is no standard of what is good or just or righteous. You know, the Bible never mentions rights. It talks a lot about righteousness, but it never mentions rights. There's no standard for what is unjust. We're living in an age when fairness has become the standard for justice. Not whether or not it's just, but whether or not it's fair. How many times do you hear that? Well, that's not fair. The question is, is it just? Society languishes. Who decides what is right and wrong in a society that abandons God and His Word? Who decides? Well, I would submit to you it's the whim of the multitude. As our text says, truth falls in the streets and justice and righteousness cannot enter. David asked a very powerful question in Psalm 11, verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, in a larger context, if the foundations are destroyed, what can a society do? And lastly, secularism leads. The result of a society that is led by the whim of the moment. Unrestrained passions of the minority become not only acceptable, but presented as undeniable. Aren't we seeing that today? Unrestrained passions march down Main Street under the guise of pride. And ultimately, what usually happens is tyranny follows, many times in the form of a ruthless dictator. You see, the problem is not that snake eggs have been spawned because they've been spawned since the Garden of Eden. The problem is not the fact that spider webs have been spun. The problem is that we have let the sword of truth slip away. I ask you a question, whose fault is that? Who has the truth? We do. I submit to you that it's our fault that God's truth has fallen in the street. American Research Group did a survey from 20 to 29-year-olds who were no longer attending church. They asked them why. Here's what they said about God's Word. They began to question God's Word, 40% of them, in elementary and middle school. 40% of them began to question God's Word in high school. And 10% said they began to question God's Word in college. Well, that's because 80% of them already began to question it before they ever got to college. I would submit to you that they did not have Sunday school teachers or pastors who supported the total truth of God's Word. 
They had Bible teachers who tried to adopt scientific views over scriptural truth. Or they had others who tried to adapt scriptural truth to scientific views. Friday, Baptist Press released a Gallup poll that was just taken. They were trying to determine how Americans were accepting God's Word. Whether Americans accepted God's Word as the literal Word of God. It's fallen to its lowest point since 1976. Now listen to this. 58% of Christians said that they believe that this is the inspired Word of God but should not be taken literally. Only 25% of Christians believe it is the actual Word of God and should be taken literally. I want you to know something. I believe this is God's Word, and I accept it as literally true from Genesis to maps. This is God's Word. This is truth. This is the sort of truth. Well, can't you compromise? I used to have people ask me that. I did a lot of work in pro-life rallies when I was in Houston, the largest abortion center in all of the United States outside of China was in Houston. People said, well, can't you compromise on abortion? I said, do you still end up with dead babies? Absolutely not. You see, if the truth of Genesis 1 through 11 falls in the streets, there's no foundation for the rest of Scripture. You see, the problem is not that the church is not entertaining enough. The problem is that the church is not educational enough. So how has the sword slipped away? How have we allowed it? Well, some deny it. It's not God's Word. Some delude it. Well, some of it may be. Some doubt it. I'm not sure. Some disregard it. I don't care. And some totally dislodge it, not here. Without the sword of truth, there is no hope. Because with it, you can cut away the spider webs and you can cut the heads off the snakes. And justice and righteousness will be able to get through. In the Lincoln and Douglas debates of 1858, Douglas made a very eloquent argument declaring the importance of giving slaveholders the right to choose. His convincing word wooed the crowd. Lincoln responded with one sentence, you never have a right to be able to choose what is fundamentally wrong. Lincoln defeated Douglas with the truth. One of my favorite theologians is Abraham Kuyper. He was not only a Dutch theologian, but he ended up becoming prime minister of the Netherlands. Listen to this quote. When values that go against your deepest convictions begin to win the day, then battle is your calling and peace has become sin. You must, at the price of dearest peace, lay your convictions bare before friend and enemy with all the fire of your faith. We're in the battle for our deepest convictions, folks. I would share with you, we're in the battle for the goodness of America. You say, what do you mean by the goodness of America? Well, in, in 1831, Alexis de Tocqueville, who was a French historian, toured the United States. He wrote about his experience in a very influential book called Democracy in America. Listen to his words. 
I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her harbors, in her fertile fields, in her boundless forests, in her rich mines and vast world commerce, in her public school system and institutions of learning. I sought for it in her Democratic Congress and matchless Constitution. But not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness that I understand the secret of, of her genius and power. America is great because America is good. If America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. We're engulfed in hatching snake eggs. We're entangled in spider webs of our own making. We must recover the sword of truth and lift it up every chance we get. Whether or not somebody accepts it is irrelevant to whether or not you're willing to stand on the fundamental, absolute truth of God's Word. With it, you can set yourself free, and you can help others get free, and you begin to cut the head off the snakes of some of these false ideas that have hatched in our society. Then and only then can justice and righteousness prevail in our society. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that you've given to us in your word. Lord, you told us not only what's happening, but also what needs to be done in order for us to correct the situation. Lord, we as Baptists call ourselves people of the truth, people of the book. But Father, more and more are deciding the book's not worth standing for or standing on. Lord, I pray that that not, might not be true here today. I pray for all those that are listening to the message whether they be here online or over in the gym, that they might in their heart make the fundamental decision that they're going to stand on the truth of God's word regardless of what anybody else would say or think. Lord, as we come out to this time of invitation, we recognize that one of the truths of your word is that man is not born good, man is born a sinner. And because of the sins in his life, the wages of those sins is death. But your word tells us that Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins, that he died on the cross and rose again, that we might, accepting that sacrifice as our own, declaring him the Lord of our life, might be saved. Father, I would pray if there's anyone here today listening to my voice who does not have that relationship with you, Lord, that they will make that decision today. Father, if there are those here without a church home and this is the place where you desire for them to come and serve, Lord, that they might make that decision as well. Take charge of this invitation. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The hymn invitation is uh, hymn number 312, Softly and Tenderly. Jesus is calling. He's the one who has spoken. If he's spoken to you today and encouraged you to make a decision, let me encourage you to do that. If you'd like to accept Christ, come. I'll be happy to talk with you. There are others here who will be happy to share what you need to do to become a Christian. If you're here without a church home and this is the place where the Lord's dealing with you, again, we invite you to come. And as always, I would encourage you to make the decision in your own heart and mind that you're going to stand on the truth of God's Word and for the truth of God's Word. Come heaven or hell, you're going to stand on the truth of God's Word. Let's stand together.
one more stanza. Is he calling you? If the Lord's been calling you and talking with you, we encourage you to make the decision that he wants you to make today. Let's sing one more stanza. with me please we thank you heavenly father for today that we're able to come to able to listen to to the message that we've heard give us the strength to stand we thank you for the for those that are here for those that are ill we we ask your your hand uh, to heal them in your your time and your will we ask now your blessings on the gifts are about to to be received and the givers in Jesus. Amen.